I'm Kelly. And welcome to The Millennial Minimalist. Hi, everyone. This is Kelly, and today I am speaking with a very exciting guest who will inspire you to eliminate the non-essential from your life so that you can lead a more productive and meaningful every day. His name is Greg McEwen, and he is a New York Times bestselling author, accomplished public speaker, CEO, and essentialist who works with top executives at the world's most innovative companies to help them achieve their greatest rewards. Greg is most widely recognized for his book titled Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, which is the number one best-selling time management book on Amazon today and one of my favorite reads to date. In Essentialism, Greg teaches how to discern what's most essential to you so that you can better prioritize your life and focus on the things that matter most to you. Greg says, quote, Essentialism is about distinguishing the trivial many from the vital few, which he calls less but better. Considering our world is packed with opportunity and flooded with distractions, for many of us, this can cause us to delay important decisions and lead a life consumed by excess noise. And this is where essentialism becomes an important way of life. Today, you will learn how practicing essentialism can help you to achieve the internal clarity to say yes to the things that matter most to you and have the strength to say no to other things. Together, we hope to inspire you to ultimately achieve what Greg deems the disciplined pursuit of less. Hi, Greg. How are you? So Hi, nice great. to see you. Very nice to see you as well. I see you have a Yeti mic. <laughs> That's great. This, is, this is it, man. If, we, if we're podcasting, this is what we have to do now. Yeah, this is the studio, at-home studio. They, tra- they track us down otherwise. Yeah, um, yeah. So I am calling you from Toronto, Canada, and I know yes, you spent some time here. I love Toronto. I have spent two marvelous years there. Formative, uh, developmental, uh, key to why I spent my life teaching and writing, in fact. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful city. I love it, especially with the fall colors right now. I've also spent time where you live. I believe you're in California. I am. Where were you in California? So my sister lived in Agora Hills. Uh, oh, that's and- close to where we are now. We moved to uh, we moved to Calabasas. Well, to Hidden Hills, but it's right next door. Beautiful. So, uh, so there you go. You know the area. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We both know each other's home. So it's great. Uh, So it's so great to connect with you today. I am, I have to tell you that I am so honored to speak with you. You are one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite thought leaders. I love everything that you're doing. I love the community that you're building. And I've actually been sharing my love for your book, Essentialism, with my podcast community for some time now. And so I'm excited to share your lessons today, specifically about how we can better prioritize our lives so that we can focus on the things that matter most. So to kick off our discussion, to give our listeners some background on you, because I really enjoyed reading your story, I'm hoping that you can briefly share the pivotal moments in your life that really encourage you to change your ways and become an essentialist? Well, one important moment was when I received an email from my boss at the time that said Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I needed you to be at this particular client meeting. And I'm sure they were joking, but as it turns out, we are in the hospital Friday morning. Our daughter has been born in the middle of the night, uh, Thursday night. And instead of being focused, on that clear priority, I'm feeling torn. I'm feeling. I'm, I'm on my laptop. I, I have my phone. I'm. I'm trying to coordinate. I'm trying to do it all. And uh, to my shame, I go to the meeting, and 
afterwards, I remember my manager saying, well, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. But the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of respect. And I knew that I had made a fool's bargain, um, that I had violated something essential for something not essential. And what I really learned was this important lesson, which is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And that was one important formative experience that has led me down this path of uh, trying to research, understand, and then teach and empower others uh, to get out of a pattern of behavior. And people listening to this can ask themselves you know, whether they find themselves, like I was, feeling stretched too thin at work or at home, uh, whether they feel sometimes busy but not productive as I was, uh, where they feel that their day is being hijacked by somebody else's agenda for them. And if the answer is yes to any of those questions, that's what I wrote the book Essentialism uh, for. That's why I launched the uh, What's Essential podcast. It's to build a community around this intentional approach to prioritization. And there was something else that also happened. I know that you were originally studying law and yes. it was a writing opportunity that took you back to the States. And someone, uh, a writer actually, Gerald Lund, I believe his name is, yes, uh, that's right. at Brigham Young University, he presented you with a writing opportunity. And through that, you were motivated to ask yourself a very important question. And that was, what do I do if I could do anything? Yeah, I mean, that's really the, those are the two pivotal moments in some ways, because uh, the first that you're alluding to was, was he, he just said, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should come and join us. And it gave me a, emotional permission to just say, well, well, what if? What if the assumptions you're holding aren't, aren't necessary? Uh, what if there's something else? And what, what if you could let go of what you're currently doing? And so, yeah, I remember calling my parents, uh, you know, 5,000 miles away from home and on a whim it appears that I'm going to quit law and and actually my father listened to me which is not entirely like him and he what he said is look you know well he became quite Churchillian about the whole thing he says son you know you know what we've always told you you know and parenthetically what he'd always told me was go to law school but uh, but in this moment, he seemed to sort of forget that. He said, well, we've always told you, and, and he quoted Shakespeare, um, as, <laughs> as all Englishmen um, are wont to do over tea and crumpets for breakfast in the morning. And he pulls this, yeah. this line out, and it, it's to thine own self be true, which is from Hamlet. Polonius mm -hmm. speaking to Laertes. And, and, and that was, you know, this was permission. He followed up another piece of advice I remember from that conversation. He had just do what is right, let the consequences follow. And so the short of it is that law school was out and that was really where I said, okay, I want, I'm going to spend my life teaching and writing. Um, the experience that I just mentioned at the hospital was one of the times where I thought, well, I think I know what I want to teach about. Uh, it's not just enough to be a messenger. You have to know what the message is. And, uh, and so the, these have been you know, two combining experiences that have uh, led me down this uh, different path. I think that is a really, really 
inspiring story because I think a lot of people can find themselves following career paths that aren't true to who they are. And so that's a powerful question. What would you do if you could do anything? And ultimately you revealed that you, law school was not on the list and it wasn't right for you. And thankfully you you know made that decision when you did. And then it led you on this path to explore and really dive deep into the research around essentialism. So this leads me to my next question. How would you describe an essentialist way of life and why is it important? Well, essentialism is really a mindset at first to discover that the mindset we've been living with or many of us are living with uh, is, is not very helpful. Uh, it's what I call a non-essentialist mindset. And the basic belief is that uh, that, that you can do it all, uh, that you're supposed to do it all. And in fact, if you do, then you'll get it all. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that it doesn't produce what it says on the packaging. Uh, it's a bill of goods. You do not get what, you do not end up with everything if you try to do everything. Mm -hmm. What you end up with is you're exhausted and you still don't get the outcomes that you want. So. You know, that that's that's the path that we often take because we think it's the only path. Uh, it's, it's just a path of busyness and everybody's doing it. And it's a, a fear of missing out. Our FOMO gets us all caught up in it. Well, that's the non-essentialist lifestyle. Uh, it's sometimes celebrated like a badge of busyness, uh, you know, sort of bogus badge of honor uh, where, where people are celebrating to each other how busy they are. Oh, I'm so busy. I, you know, all sorts of busy. I'm good, but I'm busy. I mean, there's all sorts of descriptions for it. And and, and it goes with a, a, an ongoing hustle culture. It's 24-7. And this has become not just something you might do in moments or in seasons, like a finals week or a big project you're just trying to get to the end of. It's become a lifestyle. And that there are tremendous costs when you say, well, I'm just going to do that all the time. Uh, and, and we see it in the anxiety rates and in the depression rates. Of course, we see it in the, uh, the addictions to social media and, and many other addictions that we could describe. Uh, we, we, th th this is the lifestyle that is what I would call the undisciplined pursuit of more. Uh, the, the essentialist lifestyle, in contrast, is a different mindset. It says, look, only a few things are truly essential. And so you design your day, your, and then of course, from there, your week, your quarter, your lifestyle around those things that are highly important, very important. The, the top 90, you know, the top 10%, 90% are above important. These are the things that you focus on, you invest your time in, you protect them, uh, and so what it produces over time is, well, I, I just went through my own new essentialist experiment over the last month. And what I found myself saying is the same thing I've heard so many people say, which is I've got my life back. Mm -hmm. um, and you just feel like, well, I'm not doing just because it's on my calendar already. I'm not doing just because somebody is asking it. You're doing it because you've weighed that commitment carefully. You know it really matters. You invest in it thoughtfully, and you have space on your calendar to think and to plan and to dream. And uh, it's you know this is the and it's the right term. It's a, it's a lifestyle. 
you know, essentialism is a, a mindset that grows into behavior, but eventually becomes a lifestyle, a culture, a way of being that actually produces breakthrough results without burning out. So it's uh, something that uh, is, is worth pursuing. No, absolutely. And something I should mention is that there really is a real interconnection between minimalism and essentialism. Minimalism essentially enabled me to remove the excess things out of my life so that I could build this sense of clarity. And, you know, I, I use the bullet journal method, for example, to organize my days. It's an analog system started by writer Carol. And I've expressed this to my listeners and a lot of them have adopted this method and it's really helped me keep on track. Once you clear out the clutter, you can then go in and figure out, hey, like what is essential to me? You can see it. You have this sense of clarity and then you're able to also see what is non-essential so that you can then organize your day, organize your time so that you're not wasting it and that you're using it mindfully. And the reason why I adopted this lifestyle is because I was in a career transition. I was in a personal life transition. And I realized that my best friend, the co-host of this podcast, was living very simply. <laughs> and I realized that that was actually helping her manage her time better. And she was being very, very intentional with how she managed her time. And there was also an art gallery installation that had two bowls with chips in each bowl. And in one bowl, it was, you know, I think there were maybe 50 chips. In the other bowl, there were 30 chips. It was basically showcasing that the average person lives a thousand months and they would move a chip over to the other bowl. And so that really put it into perspective for me. You know, time, how you spend your time is so important because as the minimalists would say, you, you don't get a refund on time that is spent poorly. Yes, I think, you know, I've, I've used a, a countdown app in, in a various ways and one of the things and i perhaps to some people it sounds a little depressing but but i have my sort of estimated time of uh, of death um of demise and every time i check which i don't check all you know i'm not i'm not obsessed about it but every time i check it's for me it's very inspiring it reminds me not waste any time to not waste time on non-essential uh activities there's so much trivia you can spend time on so many uh, social media, uh, scrolling, uh, that isn't, isn't purposeful and deliberate. You can spend it, but there are other things that are less obvious, like just holding grudges as an example that just consume so much mental and emotional energy, uh, keep us off track. Uh, and so as we release ourselves from those things, not just the physical things in our life, but also the emotional baggage, uh, the, 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 the mental noise, uh, and the, the activities that we know are not satisfying in the short term and are not going to serve us in the long term. As we rid ourselves from these things, uh, it's, it's amazing what we can do with this pathetically short amount of time we get. So what would you recommend for our listeners? What are one to two essentialist systems that people can implement to help them begin to gain the clarity to not only identify the non-essential, but discover and pursue what's most vital to them. One thing that I now recommend to everyone uh, is something that, that the spirit of which is in the book itself. Uh, but actually, I never wrote this question in it. And so what happened, in fact, 
people can go and listen to the, the backstory for this. Um, there's a, an episode in, in, in the What's Essential podcast with Joe Davey, who emailed me you know, within the last month, her story. So she read the book and she started asking the question, what's the most important thing I need to do today? Just that. Uh, anyone can do that, right? You can you write it on a piece of paper, put it where you can see it. And that's what she did. At first, she said she was answering it. Like the answers that came to her were professional answers. She owns her consulting company. And so she would think about clients she needed to get back to and important work to deliver. Um, nothing wrong with that. Over time, the question was the same, but the answers changed. So the answers became, uh, well, self-care answers, protecting the asset that is her, that is you, each of us. And then it took another turn, the same question, when she got a phone call from her, uh, her dad saying, well, your mom's in hospital again. It's nothing serious. It's no big deal, but I just wanted to let you know. And uh, no need to come. You know, you've got way too much on your plate. I just wanted to keep you in the loop. And she said she remembers exactly where she was when she got that call and what the weather was like outside. Time seemed to stand still as she asks that question, what's the most important thing I need to do today? And she knows completely that she needs to drive to the hospital. Uh, it's two hours away. So it's, you know, she's committing the rest of the day to doing this. And she goes, she sees her mother, that she's able to say to her, look, I love you. Everything's going to be all right. The mother says the same back to her. But within an hour of that, her mother had slipped into a coma. Uh, and within a week, uh, she had the unfortunate task of having to turn off the, uh, the life support machine. And she just wrote to say how different that moment could have been, how different that day could have been if she hadn't been an essentialist. And and in that little story, there's the power of that question. You you can change considerably the direction and even trajectory of your life by changing the questions you're asking. And and it's a deceptively simple question, but what's the priority for today is uh, is is an important way to start bending your life back to what is essential. Absolutely. I listened to that conversation with Joanna. I thought that did was, you? I did. And I, I loved that episode because it's really nice to see you bring a community member, you know, a listener, a reader of your book onto your podcast. That question is so powerful. And I feel like it's something that we can all apply to our lives. And, you know, that starts with putting pen to paper every morning, journaling. I think that that is really, really helpful putting your thoughts to paper. I know even like the great Marcus Aurelius, that's what he did every day. He wrote down his thoughts and he asked himself, how did I perform today and how can I do better tomorrow? So well, and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but, but the, um, I haven't talked about this anywhere else, but you're talking about journaling and I am in the midst right now of creating an essentialist planner. And I, I have, I was, I've been asked to do that for years and years and just always put it off because I didn't feel like I was ready to, to do it. But I'm using it now myself and my whole family is too, actually. And it's such, it's so helpful and useful. It's just, just enough of the right pieces are coming together. And of course it doesn't solve the whole dilemma of what to do and, you know, how to utilize your time. You're still grappling with trade-offs and we wish we didn't have any trade-offs of, mm -hmm. Where, where you can't do both, you want to do both. 
where they're good and valuable and enjoyable. But nevertheless, it has really helped us to develop a, an effortless discipline around these things. So instead of being an essentialist only on the days you happen to think about it, or you, you know, you're, you're, maybe you feel really exhausted on a particular day or overwhelmed, so then you remember, oh, I should read essentialist, I should, I should come back to these ideas. This tool is helping us to actually just do it day in and day out as, a, as an ongoing process. So anyway, I just wanted to mention it. There's also a journaling aspect. It's not just writing down your tasks for the day, because I think that's something, and I think it's something that you've mentioned before in interviews, is we're always concentrating on what our to-do list, like what's on our to-do list, but what's not on our to-do list. Like we should also right. appreciate that. You know, what are our life goals? Where is the space that we want to, you know, we need to create space for self-care, for family, for relationships. And I know you've mentioned the mind sweep, which is basically an unloading of everything in your mind to gain clarity and space. And is it, and I, I, I take that in as that's, you know, you can do that when you start journaling. You know, when I started adopting the bullet journal method and any method works, like you can just get a calendar journal. It'll be messy in the start because you're writing down everything. And for me as perfectionist, it was hard for me at the beginning, but then I started to realize like, hey, now I can see where my time is going. Mm. And then I can go through it, concentrate on everything I'm getting done and what I'm not getting done. Most of it, you know, it was a planning fallacy in the beginning. Yeah. And then you can edit out the non-essential. So, so there's, there's one specific thing that I, that I haven't seen in other planners, but I have in mind now, which I, it doesn't really matter. These are all just specific things, but my mind happens to be here today as, you, as you're talking about this. But the, the daily calendar I'm using has the first half, side, half of the calendar, the first column is your plan. And the second column is what you actually did. And so you're keeping a daily log of your time log. So it's again, time logging isn't something that's a new idea, but normally my experience, people have either never done it, or if they have done it, because it's just one more extra thing, they do it for, you know, they maybe do it for a day at the very most, the very most someone's done it for a week. So what I'm enjoying is, is just that reflective experience every day to look, well, this is what I thought I would be doing. This is what it really was. I thought this, writing this, the, the weekly column I write, the, the one minute Wednesday, oh, I thought that was going to take me this amount of time. Well, actually, it took me that plus 50%. And, and so that you can start getting better and more intelligent in your own design for the next day and the next week so that so that you get more realistic about it. And I found that very insightful uh, as, as I continue to craft what I hope is an ideal and essentialist uh, routine, not just for me, but you know, for each of the members of my family and, and, and the company beyond that. And in this journal, do you also journal your thoughts or are you just... Yes. Okay. No, there's a there's a whole page every day for that. And and previously, I I mean, I've written a, a journal. I mean, I don't, I haven't really missed a day in a decade, and, and not much in the last 15, 20 years. And and I normally have a preference for just having a very open journal. Uh, but there's been something quite nice about being limited even to just one page. Which I know for some people they're like, well, yeah, I mean, a page is more than they're doing every day right now. But but just having, you know, that that challenge to say, well, what's the most important thing from today? 
what's, what's the most, if you could only remember one thing from today, what would it be? And then of course you can have space for other things. But, but I, I find that that process of prioritizing my reflection helps me to be educated about the things that I want to prioritize for the next day and the next day. Mm -hmm. um, it, yeah. You're creating space to kind of unload sometimes those, those unconscious thoughts that we just kind of let go of, right? And that's what journaling helps bring out. And something that really helps me continually use my journal or my bullet journal, because I think something that a lot of people do is they get a journal, they use it for a week, and then they stop using it. Mm -hmm. Something that keeps me using it is physically crossing out my accomplishments every day. By crossing mm -hmm. the tasks out, it makes me feel like, okay, I've accomplished something. So then I can keep going. And also being able to look back and see how much I've accomplished and see how much closer I'm getting to accomplishing a certain goal as well. So that is also helpful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because as I've been designing this new planner, I've used other people's planners, right? I'm evaluating other experiences and what, what works and what doesn't. And, and one of the planners I look has a certain amount of space for gratitude each week. And that's, that's, I think it's great. I am huge on the weekly gratitude list. But what's been interesting is that they only allowed maybe five or six lines for it. So it's not very much, not even as much as a third of a page. And that's not how I, that's not how I do my weekly reflection. The weekly reflection is, the, is like my most mentally healthy, that's not the most, but it's one of the most mentally healthy practices in my life is once a week, to review the whole week and simply list the, the things I'm most grateful for, the most progress that was made. And, and I don't stop at four or five. I, I, wanna, I want to fill up a whole page, 10, 10 things, 15 things, as many things as you can think of. And it's, it's very satisfying. Uh, and, and I think it's a great counterweight to impatience and perfectionism which I think is, you know, can so rob us and make us feel like we're always behind uh, when, when actually you've got so much going right. Uh, and, and so, so that's one of the things I, I feel that's important. I always say it would be more important than daily gratitude, uh, even though I, I mean, actually that's how I journal most of, most of the time is just gratitude items. Um, but still I find the weekly experience more cathartic, more enriching. And actually the research in gratitude supports that, 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 the, that you get more bang for your buck in weekly gratitude lists than in, than in daily recording. So I, wow. I think that's interesting too. Wow, that's great. I'm excited for this journal. I'm excited to check it out once it comes out. Uh, so actually, so I'd love to, I wanted to mention, since reading your book, Essentialism, twice over, I should say, in one through uh, an audiobook, uh, wow. I've made an effort to prioritize non-negotiable time blocks in my schedule to disconnect. Uh, started at the beginning of COVID, especially one hour walks in the morning. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a non-negotiable 30 minute run every day and I will make myself go for that five minute coffee or 15 minute coffee because I've learned that it's helped me come back into the work that I'm doing with a clear headspace. And there are moments where I'll see it on my calendar and I'll be like, oh, but I can continue to work. But I know that it is going to be the best return on my investment. I know it's going to make me feel better. So I just do it anyways. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's always a positive coming back. 
That being said, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, it's taken a lot of self-discipline because our busy culture, busy and distracted culture continues on. And especially through COVID, there are less boundaries between our work life and our life. Uh, So I'm hoping you can share your idea of less but better and how it can help us avoid unhealthy trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, less but better is really the mindset of the essentialist. It's it's a it's such, in my view, a beautiful, um, succinct summary. Uh, it's not less is more, less but better. Do fewer things, but do them richly. Do them deeply. Do them to a way that is satisfying. Uh, put less but better on your calendar so that you can enjoy the things you actually do. So you can give yourself fully to the people you're meeting with. Give them your full attention. Uh, and so on. I mean, less but better as it applies to COVID, I think you already illustrated one of the most important words for applying it now, which is boundaries. And you need to create your own boundaries because basically all of the boundaries that did exist before are all gone. Uh, We could say it in a polite way. We could say that our lives are now completely integrated, but that I think doesn't quite summarize the experience for people. You know, it's more like a convergence. It's just everything just sort of suddenly got thrown together and, and not in anything like a, 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 a change management process where you know, maybe over an 18-month period, you could, okay, now I'm going to work from home and, oh, now I'm going to homeschool one of my children. And you, know, you could have a whole process that would still take something out of you. But no, this all happened quite literally overnight. And, and people really, I think, I think are still recovering from it. You know, even as it's become a kind of new normal and they're into new routines, I think that the a slightly almost PTSD experience of suddenly having to try and uh, deal with it all. Uh, and, and, and I think that particularly the, the problem of, of no end to anything, no natural end. Zoom meetings, you know, I summarized it recently when I was talking to a group uh, about essentialism, and I said, "Well, it's sort of a, a, a sleep, eat, Zoom existence." And somebody corrected me. They said, "Well, actually, it's probably the other order. It's like Zoom, eat, sleep. That that Zoom is the thing." And and so, okay, that's a tool. There's some good things to that. But what can you do to make sure it doesn't just mean that by the end of the day you look at your Fitbit and you've gone, you know, three hundred steps? Uh, what, what, what do you do to make sure that you don't just spend back-to-back Zoom meetings and then in between you're just on social media and an email and, and your whole life just sort of flows into and you don't even know what day it is and it doesn't really matter because everybody else is doing the same thing. What can you do? Well, one practice I was inspired by by somebody else that I had on the podcast, Ben Bergeron, uh, even before COVID, had a clear 525 he would leave whatever meeting he was in, no matter what the meeting, he'd just start packing up, keep talking to people as he got to the door, 5.30, he'd leave. When I heard that story, I thought, um, I, I, well, someone else told me his story first, and that's why I had him on the podcast, because I wanted to see if it was true uh, and, and, and learn from him. But, but as soon as I'd heard the story, even before meeting him, I said, I said, this is a good thing. I don't want to be out essentialized. I mean, I want to you know, I want to live this for real. And I, and I said at the beginning of COVID, okay, five o'clock, I'm going to walk out the office, no matter what else is going on and just announce it to the, to the family. <laughs> it's, it's, I do it like a, like a town crier. It's 501, you know, it's five o'clock. 
And, uh, and, and it gives me a reason to stop. It gives me a reason not to go on to 5.30. I mean, I'm in the middle of a project. I just, I, in fact, I, one of the big projects was writing a book. I've written a new book and it's finished now. And, uh, and of course you get to five and you could carry on going. Of course there's work to do. And it doesn't matter whether you're writing a book or, or whether you're just doing other projects. There's never an end until you make an end. And so, so that has kept me going. And I, I would say that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've hardly not done what I just described. I think the latest I remember doing was like 523 or something. And so you really can do it. And it just, it just gives you a reason not to five, six, seven. And if it's seven, why isn't it eight? And if it's eight, why not eight? I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, so that, that clear boundary on that line, um, my wife and I go for a walk together. That's one way to keep us accountable. At first, it was just, you know, pretty much every day. And it wasn't a set time. And then eventually we realized, no, it's going to make it a lot simpler if we can work out with the whole family when we do that. So now we go at you know, eight in the morning and we go for an hour. And we realized first it was five days a week. And we realized that's really not enough. You still, the weekend, you still need it. So we do it every single day now. And it really is, these things are maintaining a lot of health. And, and in fact, I would say that even in COVID times, you, you can get, there's a lifestyle possibility that was harder to get to before. So, so turning this on its head, it's like there's an opportunity here uh, for a better lifestyle in some ways. And to embrace the possibility of it, of it has, has been helpful. And I, for one, don't want to go back to how it was before. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I know I'm not alone in that. Uh, you Paul in the UK found that only 9% of the people want to go back to how things were before. So even though I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not pro COVID <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, at all. I mean, it's tremendously troubling and discombobulating that this has happened. I still think we can't control a lot of that individually. So we can instead embrace the possibilities here. And, and, uh, and, and those are some of the ways that we've applied less, but better in these times. I love that you mentioned your wife, Anna. She really is your accountability partner. And you actually recently interviewed her on your podcast, uh, which was formerly called the Essentialism Podcast. Now it's called What's Essential. And That's I, right. love, I love that name change. I think it's great. Do you? Yeah. I, I, I want your feedback now because you're like, why? Do you like it? Was it weird that we changed it? It was too yeah. late now, but I'm still interested in why why you like the change or well, anything. I'll give you I'll give you an example of why. I I recommended your podcast to a close friend of mine, and originally I said, "Oh yeah, it was originally called Essentialism, and now it's called What's Essential." She's like, "Oh, I get I get what it means by What's Essential. I didn't understand what essentialism meant, right? Uh, so I now love they that. understand what's essential. Everybody uh, understands that." Well, I, I love that input because because when it was the name of the book, well, obviously it's still the name of the book, but the book then explains it. The subtitle explains it. You know, there's more to it. But so I I think one of the practical things is when we call it essentialism, those that already knew essentialism, fine, they sort of have an idea of what this is. But anyone who's new to it, uh, and I and I probably underestimated how many people would come to the podcast that weren't at all familiar with the book. 
Uh, and so that, you know, they're just, they're just looking for content and people recommend it and they, they've never read anything, but they are listening. We need to, we need to think of them uh, first, but also the people, I mean, you just said it. I mean, Joe Davies, not the first, she's not the first. I mean, I think that's three or four or even five of the episodes. And we've only been up for a few months uh, are people who have reached out to me to share their story or to ask a question and and I found it so intriguing what they were putting to me that I said, okay, well, we'll just talk and do an episode together and we'll we'll have this little coaching session together. Uh, and so that symbolically, I just felt like, well, that's not the book. It's consistent with it, but we're, we're, we've moved into new territory now. Uh, we're not repeating what's there. We're, we're learning together. And that's the, that's the vision for this is, is a community. We need it. Yeah, we, we need do. it. We do. And you know what? I think what's essential essentially asks a question. So when people say about that, what's essential? It starts, it makes me start to think, okay, what's essential to me? And that is really helpful. Also, as someone who's listened to every episode, I think that- Well, that's nice of you. At the end of every episode, you start asking yourself that question in different ways because you're listening. And this is one of my questions. You interview some of the greatest thought leaders. You really do. And in, in many of these discussions, you actually ask the same question. You ask, tell me something in your life that is really important that you are currently under investing in. And the overwhelming response seems to be self-care. So considering our health is our most valuable asset, I'm curious, like, what systems do you practice to prioritize self-care and avoid potential burnout? I know you've mentioned the walks in the morning, but is there something else that you do to avoid, you know, skipping those times where you really do need to step back? Well, what I wish I was better at was getting sort of the, the, the seven to eight hours sleep that we really need to have at night. Um, I, I've embraced it more recently as, as a blessing, but when I wake up in the morning, I'm awake. There's very rare that I can go back to sleep after I wake. And I have sort of this natural clock. And as soon as I'm, I mean, it doesn't really matter what time I go to sleep, I'm going to be suddenly awake early. And the the upside to that is that, you know, while no one else is just about in the world is awake, you're up and you can have quiet, you know, emotionally and spiritually renewing practices that I follow, you know, meditation, prayer, read. I read scripture, I read other wisdom literature. Uh, I mean, all of that is done before, you know, but before anybody else generally is, you know, there's no one else driving, there's no one doing anything. That's an upside that comes from it that I think is related to self-care. So having not found a great solution for me, just sleeping longer at night, uh, I I have become like, um, like a master napper. Uh, I'm like a professional napper. I have no hesitation to do it. I mean, I work from home, so that obviously makes that easier for a lot of people, certainly pre-COVID. I mean, that, it's, it's a less practical proposition, but, but I, I, you know, I work, I do the writing, I go through a certain routine that I'm following, uh, but towards the afternoon, most days I will go and sleep, and depending on how much I need, it could be quite a long nap. Uh, and uh, that's one thing Actually, I mean, the research is really so strong in this. I mean, the, the top performers sleep more, not just at night, but they take more naps as well. And, and so this is so counter the hustle culture argument that says, oh, you just you know, sleep when you're dead kind of 
we actually literally say that. Uh, you know, if you want to be a top performer, you sleep. Uh, of course, you don't oversleep, but you sleep and you're purposeful about it and thoughtful about it. And you, uh, and, and so, so naps would definitely be one of them. Uh, another that uh, that Anna and I have slowly developed is just a done for the day uh, list. Sometimes an actual list that we say once this is done, we are we, you know put your hands up, walk away, nobody gets hurt. Uh, but also just calling each other out gently going, okay, are we done? Are we still working? Because we could, you know, there's always more to do. And, and as we have got into that norm with each other, it means that you can have actual relaxation time. We, we, we in a way have had to learn how to relax. I think a lot of overachievers are in that same mode that the, the second they aren't doing in the sense of you know, basically emails and meetings and, and, and that kind of doing, they, they feel guilty. They think, well, I'm wasting time. And so we've had to develop, like, how do we relax? What works for us? Uh, we've developed, and we've got miles to go still, but we've developed quite, you know, quite uh, involved you know, nighttime rituals now. And we've had all of our children at least start to write out. I mean, they have all written out their nighttime rituals. And, and to acknowledge that this takes, you know, for sure it takes an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think it's I think it's two or three hours in some ways. I mean, if you've got a quality night ritual that includes journaling, planning the next day, includes reading a, a novel that's uplifting, it includes... Uh, you know, checking with the family again. It includes for us sitting in the hot tub and talking. I mean, it, you start to add these things and, and it all starts to be quite enjoyable. You know that past a certain point, you aren't just going to have a dissatisfied evening where you feel like you're wasting time. No, you're going to do purposeful, good, renewing things that are healthy and helpful. So those, I don't know how many I covered, but those are sort of three-ish uh, things that uh, that we've helped tried to do and are currently doing to maintain physical mental health. Your note on taking time to just relax and do nothing. That is something that I'm challenging with. Like, for example, I am on vacation right now, staycation for a week. And everyone's like, oh, so what are you doing every single day? And usually I pack my calendar and right. I've, created, I've created white space to do nothing. And that's so hard for me because I see that as wasting time, but I'm unlearning that. I'm starting to unlearn that. It's so important that as Anna, your wife said in the latest episode, so important to spend time to dream, just enjoy life, to live life, create that space. It's in that time that you're walking in nature. Maybe you're not listening to a podcast. Maybe you're not listening to music. You're just being present that new ideas and new reflections come through, right? And so I think that's really important. And I think that I've experienced burnout before. I've interviewed the author of The Burnout Gamble, and we went through the stages and how to potentially avoid burnout. And so I've come to reflect on the importance of, as you said, sleep. And you know, you've interviewed Ariana Huffington. She talks about the importance of sleep because she collapsed due to overwork. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Robert Glazer, you interviewed him as well, author of Elevate. He mm -hmm. collapsed due to overwork. And <laughs> this, this, these stories are so common and they mm -hmm. continually, they, they continue on. So like, 
you know, this lifestyle will hopefully help us, you know, avoid that. And so that we can create that space. Um, sorry, I think you had a question for me. Oh, I don't remember it now, but, but tell me the name of the book again. Now that we're on it. Oh, it is called The Burnout Gamble by Hamza Gamble. Khan. Yeah. yeah. He's uh, from Toronto. Yeah. I mean, this problem of, I mean, it, maybe it sounds a bit like essentialism at first. It's certainly complementary, but this problem of being on the edge of burnout as a norm. I mean, you can look at it the negative side. And the negative side, of course, is that we're on the edge of burnout and we can fall off the edge and we're, we're, we're making less you know, decisions are worse and, and we're getting worse results. And, and I mean, there's lots of downsides to this negative return on any additional hour of work once you're on that edge. But the opportunity of it is that you literally can find an easier way to do life that will produce better results. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I can't really talk about ideas now without the new book ideas in my mind because it's all integrated and it's, it's part of it. But that's really, you know, the, the new book is really devoted to a single principle, which is that not everything has to be so hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, for some people, okay, well, maybe for some people, they're just not working, they're not working hard enough. They're, they're talking about their dreams, they're not doing anything about it. You know, maybe some of, us, some of us are inherently lazy. Nevertheless, there is a portion of society whose problem is that they are trying too hard. And, uh, and, and so they, they, they end up you know, exhausted because they, they, they just always are pushing the pedal to the floor. That always, they think that is always the answer. So even as they get towards burnout, they presume that the solution is to push even harder. Mm-hmm. And so they kept themselves in this, this total rut, this trap. And so anyway, this is, this is who I've really been writing to now on this, uh, in this next book. So Because I think a lot of people feel wherever they were before COVID, one standard deviation closer to burnout than they were mm-hmm. before. No, absolutely. And who's to say that the burnout just comes from the work that they're doing? It could become, it could come from all the distractions around them as well. People don't notice how much they're spending, yeah. how much time they're spending Valid. on their phone. You know, you've interviewed Cal Newport, Digital Minimalism, the book Digital Minimalism, which I highly recommend as well. And he says that it's, you know, it's not that these tools are bad. It's, it's how we use them. Like they can take away from our lives or they can amplify our lives. So it's something to think about. But something that you said in a recent episode was you said that there's so many talking heads when it comes to the news. Uh, so yeah. I'm curious, do you, as an essentialist, uh, you know, how do you consume the news with intention or filter out the noise? Uh, I'm not sure I'm great at it. Uh, I, I made a really deliberate choice you know, I don't know exactly when, but certainly months ago, maybe it was years now, I don't know, but, but where I just said, this news is, um, what is, what is being described as news, breaking news is often when you pause and really think about what you learned, uh, little more than, you know, somebody tweeted about somebody else's tweet. And now we're going to sit here talking about that tweet. I mean, this is this is gossip. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. This is 
news. I, I, my undergraduate was in journalism. And so I, I've always thought of myself part journalist. And there's a craft to journalism. There's an art to it. There is a purpose to it. And it's, and it's real, you know, the driver of it ought to be to discover something that's not obvious, mm-hmm. to find something under the surface, to, dis- to find what, what really matters amidst all of the noise. Mm-hmm. And the trouble with the current news s- cycle is that, is that there's no space for that reflection. In far too many instances, what you're getting in cable news of all flavors what you're getting in internet news, again, of all flavors, is so instantaneous. You're just passing on, you're just sort of passing on the rubbish that, that you've just read somewhere and nothing's getting validated. It's very hard to get clear about what is real and what isn't real. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I find, I, I, you know, my, my intention is just to turn it way down. Uh, and, and, you know, the best things that I feel like I've done to achieve that is to be purposeful about what I am going to do. Uh, so I still struggle a little bit with being a news junkie. It's still, I mean, I, it's, I still want, here's what it is. I still want to get from it what I used to get from it, uh, which was insight into the world. And, and as, a, as a human systems thinker, a leadership, you know, author, I'm, I, I used to be fascinated by the dynamics involved, and to some extent I still am, but I find myself emptier afterwards. It's a lower calorie diet now uh, than than uh, it used to be, or maybe I'm saying that wrong. It's like a, it's a, it's a lower, uh, I don't know if that's the right way, high, higher calorie count. It's a less satisfying meal at the end of it. And so I, I've, one of the things I've moved towards is actually just, just reading more uh, paperback, you know, like, I mean, physical books uh, so that you don't get tempted just into, you know, into more digital uh, decay. Uh, and, and even, even, you know, novels. I mean, uh, my children have read so much now. My eldest was just, is just applying to university now. And she, um, she was just writing up all of the books that she's read. And, and, you know, she's, she's sort of circa 200 books. And, and so, Wow. One of the one of the downsides to that is that you know, like nobody likes a book pusher. I know that from experience because I'm like the book pusher. You know, oh, read this, read that. This will be good for you. Well, all my children are book pushers now to me, and so they've read all these different series that aren't in my my genre, and now and now I feel this sweet burden of reading these books, and I've just I'm actually doing that now, and it's it's really fun to read you know, Percy Jackson, uh, and, and to, to read the, the novels and the series that they have enjoyed and to, to join in those memories, uh, with them. I mean, I read them, I was, the, I, I read them Harry Potter, the whole series, uh, which is my claim to fame. And as the one that's read probably 50 books or series wow. to them, literally, wow. uh, over the years, that's, that was, they've grown up all sitting out their bedroom doors, listening to just classics, beautiful, really beautiful stories um and they have this combined collective memory now of uh, of not just anne of green gables for example but later anne of green gables series has 
a whole there's a whole new generation when she's a mother and and, and she's married to now to Gilbert Blythe and they, they have all of this in their mind and 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 many many besides and so I just think if you can if you can one way to push out the darkness is to fill your life with the light right and and so that's where I I, I would give myself a higher grade on, on filling my world with the light than that fully actually switching off the news. Yeah. So you've basically put the news aside and you've incorporated more reading into your life. Uh, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. That's, it's an intentional move. The thing is, is I started thinking about that when you said that and I was thinking, okay, well, how can I still like keep up with the current news, but not have to, you know, be overwhelmed by all the noise. And so I thought about it. And so I just integrated just like mentally, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to read these certain news sources every day and I'm going to give myself a half an hour to do so. And then yeah. that's it. And then I'm just not going to look at anything else. And so yeah. again, it's a lot of self-discipline. That's what I've done for myself. But, uh, and something I should say is like this time you mentioned earlier in our conversation that COVID in a way, you know, the pandemic, like you don't want to go back. You said, what did you say? What percentage doesn't want to go back? Yeah, like only 9% in this YouGov poll in the UK want to, wanted to go back to how things were before. Yeah. So so they, don't, they don't want, no, people don't want, nobody wants COVID to go on. I mean, that, that's what a horrific thing that would be to want that. But, but you don't want to go back to the have to travel, have to take kids to everything. You know, that, that sort of, mm -hmm. that vibe, that vibe's not great either. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you spoke with Ariana Huffington on your podcast and together you acknowledged the silver linings to the COVID-19 pandemic. And you said a powerful quote, and that is today can hopefully be remembered in some ways as the great reset. Mm. How would you describe this great reset? And do you think this time can influence an essentialist mindset post pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, I think that what the pandemic produced was uh, an involuntary essentialism in the, in the early days of it. I mean, that lockdown experience, which are, for all of us that lived through that, we will never forget it. I mean, that, that's, a, that's sort of a, quite a unique human experience that we all had. Literally overnight, countries closing. I mean, it, it was unthinkable a week, two weeks before that happened. And it was like, the, you know, sort of half of the global community is literally sent to their room, you know, actually sort of metaphorically sent to their room, like a teenager, look, you go to your room, have a think about this, and you come out when you're ready. Uh, and in that moment, whether people wanted to or not, I think they were asking something like, what's essential? Uh, now, what what really matters now, and uh, and so it's not the same as involuntary essentialism because it it kind of comes from a different place. One's externally driven, the other comes from within. But I think in that moment and that experience, especially in those first few days, those weeks, people did have to face. Well, I mean, they had to face their own family. They had to face their own life choices you have to look at your life and uh, and and a lot of stuff was immediately removed from your life and you had to determine whether you missed it or not mm -hmm. all these things that you used to think i have to 
we have to have our kids in these sports, all these sports, all these extra, we have to. And then you didn't have to, clearly. You chose to, and, and did you miss it? What's missed? How missed is it? What? And that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we, that there aren't things that we no longer have access to that, that like some of that stuff is important. I mean, our social interaction, most of us really miss that. And that's because we have a social need and it's not being fully met. So that shows that it is an essential need, but there's many activities that took on a very important place in our mind psychologically that, nah, I was talking to Derek Sivers. Actually, it's a funny story because Derek, um, he was one of the very first people I interviewed for the podcast, but it didn't appear because it was literally at a time that I couldn't buy um, microphones or anything. So it's, it's a terrible <laughs> recording. Uh, so I, I, I couldn't admit to it at first. And so I emailed him just recently and said, you know, can we do it again? Because we can't use the recording and he's just so great. So I'm about to interview him tomorrow, I think. Um, and, but he'd planned a whole summer of glorious travel. He, he, he had the entire summer mapped out to go, you know, he, he, one of his dreams was to travel the world and uh, do it in, and he did three, four months of just, that's all he was going to do. And he said when COVID hit and suddenly the entire thing is canceled, right? Every single thing he'd planned, every hotel, every flight, everything is over. He, he, he was really surprised to find that the emotion inside was something like, eh, you know, and he, he thought, well, how important was it? I guess it didn't matter so much to me. I, I thought it mattered. It was a goal and I put a lot of effort into it, and, but it disappears. And I guess that wasn't what life was made of. That isn't what was important. That's what I think everybody got to have a moment with is which things do I really care about? Which things do I not really care about? And I, I don't think people are living in that mental space right now. I think they're past that first quite shocking experience, but we all have, if we want it, a touch point to go back to. Uh, that, that feeling of being, I interviewed somebody else on the podcast who, who talked about in the early days, she was, you know, they all got together for meals and watching a movie together every night. And then slowly as they've gone forward, everyone's still on screens, but all separate. And that's not the same feeling. And so, you know, just, just coming back to that experience, that moment, I think offers, offers an opportunity and, and some people will take it. And, and I, think, I think it's been in that way a very essentialist opportunity. Yeah, I think that even for myself, uh, it's obviously working from home. I've been able to slow my pace. I mm. also like to say that I'm starting to design my work around my life rather than my life around my work. And that feels amazing. And I think that you said some, something similar when you were speaking to Anna on your recent episode that you're like, wow, I feel like I've become an essentialist again, <laughs> you know, yeah. second time, you know, sometimes, you know, we're living this lifestyle, but it requires constant maintenance and something that this period has made the silver lining in all this for me is relationships. And I think that relationships in my life are what give me a sense of meaning and purpose. And I think it's what gives everybody fulfillment in their life. So I've made 
time for my family, for my friends. I've also made specific time to go through my relationships and figure out like, who haven't I kept in touch with? Who haven't I re- reached out to recently? And I know you spoke to Jordan Harbinger, uh, yeah. who, who also mentioned, you know, here's how I manage all the relationships in my life. And he had some incredible tips. So I recommend our listeners go and check out that episode. But yeah, so it's definitely been a great, I love the word reset. When you use that word, it just really resonated with me Mm. because I was like, this is literally the great reset for people. This is an opportunity to clear those things. And as you said, you know, in times of adversity, you realize that you don't need as much, you know, it's because, you know, even just little things like, oh, I couldn't get those certain items from the store. You know, I like to say it's, you know, you're buying less, you're using less and you quickly realize you need less. So, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and you also need more of the things that make you happy. And here's a time to incorporate that into your life. So. Yes. And, and I think it also created some space. I mean, the downsides, the downsides of COVID are like really obvious, right? Like, of course, first and foremost, the, the loss of life. Right. And so nothing, nothing can make up for that. And in addition to that, it has also I keep saying it creates, it has created a new moment, an opportunity, some space. I, I am, I personally know of several authors in my personal friendship group who have written books or got down and finished books that they otherwise wouldn't have done. I just was talking back to a musician friend of mine from, from, uh, for many years, a friend of mine, and, and he, he just finished a project that he has been working on literally for 21 years. I remember talking to him about it 20 years ago, actually probably 21 years ago when I, when he was first working on it, I remember. And, and he's finally finished it. And that's happened because he suddenly has had a different amount of space to get heads down and do it. Uh, you know, my new book is the same. I mean, that, that's yeah. all I'm just saying as a metaphor. It's like you can choose what to do with this. And I think if there's no, obviously there's no going back to how life was, but also there's been this split that's happened where all sorts of things have been created that would never have been created or would have not been created now that suddenly are being breathed into existence. Mm-hmm. And that's compelling idea for me. Uh, to, to just, to just think about all of. I mean, maybe we could call it sort of COVID culture, but but just a new reality that was born mm-hmm. in this disruption, in this isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, every, I know for me anyway. Every day I've worked on the new book, I have, I've sort of laughed at myself. Like my my, my deadline was August, with or without COVID, and every day I've worked on it, I'm like, what was your plan, Greg? You know, because because I just don't I hadn't done a good enough job in actually shifting out and into monk mode. Uh, I found that harder to do this time around than I did for essentialism because of essentialism, because of exactly the problems that I talk about in essentialism, which is as things are successful, you have more options. And so Mm -hmm. I was simply traveling more than I was before. And and so it's just it's been oh, it's been a total godsend for me to just sit down, think, write, focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I hope others are, take advantage of that, um, e- even as we want you know, a new reality to, to dawn. Yeah, I was going to say, you, COVID, in a sense, you had this 
extra space to finish your book and, and have that deep focus and, you know, get into monk mode, as you said, you've interviewed Jay Shetty, Jay Shetty's interviewed you. Highly recommend you check out those episodes to it, guys. And that's great. Like, see, these are the, and I love to hear that a friend of yours, you know, completed a passion project that you put on the back burner. Like these are, this is, these are the beautiful things that are coming to the surface. And I would argue that in many ways there were, you know, Western society has lost values that are more virtuous. And I argue that those values are, you know, connection and contribution. And I think that's something that we're starting to really appreciate these days. And I think Jordan Harbinger, I think it was him who he, he mentioned that, you know, always be giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I love when he said that because it's so true. I mean, you not only get this sense of a helper's high, but when you're giving to others, you know, you get so much in return. So, yeah. It, it, that, that, his insight about that and that system that he describes of is, um, is so complementary to what I've believed before about essentialism, that you need a system that works for you. But it was still a, a new thought the way he described it. And, and I came away from that and have continued to work on that system myself. But creating a system that, a networking relationship building system that is generous in its creation is, is so smart. Uh, you don't have to just be generous in relationships when you happen to think about it or you happen to be with somebody, which of course you want that. You want that character within you to feel like that towards people. Of course you do. But in addition, you could build a system that reinforces that and makes that easier and easier uh, to, 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 to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I interviewed uh, years ago the, um, the, the creator of, uh, of the Stanford prison experiment Oh, no kidding. Uh, Z- Z- oh, wow. Yeah, Zambado. And, and uh, I had lunch with him, actually. And he, at first, I was really just trying to understand, I don't know, just understand his way of thinking and his, you know, what, you know, the same kinds of questions I suppose everyone's asked him since, since, he, since he conducted that basically unethical experiment in the, in the basement at Stanford University. <laughs> but it's still fascinating, right? So unethical, but we still want to learn about it. Uh, and and towards the end of the conversation, it shifted. And I basically asked him, well, do you think it could be reversed? Like, do you think you could create a system that would create virtuous behavior in the same way you created a system that created the devils out of these, these devil guards were so vicious towards their fellow students, even though they know the whole thing is an experiment, but they just got lost in the, in the experiment. They went native in it. Could you do the same the other way around? And he he described what he's called as the Heroes Project, which actually he spent years and years working on now, which is exactly that, using a system that that reinforces being courageous and doing the right thing in a difficult position, and and how you would create that. And 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 uh, and I'm I'm optimistic enough to believe that that such a thing will will take place eventually. That that we will create these systems. Uh, I don't mean in the next year. I don't mean, oh, we're going to sort all the civil unrest out in these these issues just just overnight. No, yeah. I, I don't foresee that at all. I see a lot of disruption coming. But in the longer term, uh, I actually think not only do I think it's possible, I think it's inevitable mm-hmm. um, that that the systems based the systems based on incorrect principles and paradigms and perspectives will collapse. 
they, they actually they have to because they're not built on principles that are sustainable and so therefore eventually they will discombobulate uh, in the same way as bloodletting eventually discombobulated yes it was it was the practice for many many years mm -hmm. um uh, but eventually it gave way to reality because it was actually not based in in truth uh and, and the truth will out and i think the same for these sort of corrupted non-essentialist systems or systems that just make us less generous and and and, and more selfish these things will eventually mm -hmm. eventually collapse under their own weight and a new a newer better way of living and, and uh, you know that, that will come forward and and i think if someone is paying attention they can see some of that is already happening mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, and i see a reason for optimism in those examples of, of these new systems. Yeah, and you know, much of these, many of these systems are being moved forward by you and myself, right? You know, building these communities. Just so. Yeah, so to close, I have a couple rapid fire questions for you Good. that I'm hoping that you can respond in a few words because I know you challenge your guests to respond in a few words for a few questions that you ask them. <laughs> so what matters most to you and why? Um, light matters most to me. Why? Um, because it affects every other decision. Because in the end, you have a choice in every moment whether to move towards greater light or greater darkness and heaviness. And every moment offers you that, no matter how good or bad it is, you have that choice before you. And my experience is that whichever when you choose, it tends to beget more of itself. Uh, if you if you choose the light path, and that's that means something slightly different to everybody, but we know, I think people know, I think within them they know whether they're making a choice in this moment that's the right choice that feels full of light or whether they're making a choice that's more selfish, more, uh, more decadent, more dark. So light is what matters most, and that's why. Sometimes you have to trust your gut. Uh, how has an essentialist lifestyle helped you develop your purpose statement? I've, I've been working on and developing purpose statements my whole life. Uh, from being very young, I was exposed to that idea of writing mission statements. And, and so, I mean, really like maybe preteen doing that. And I think that, the outcome of that work has been really meaningful. Um, the words that, that have been generated, that, that as I remember them, as I repeat them, they, they, can, they can be enormously motivating. But it's, uh, it's more the process. The process has been what, what has been life-changing uh, because you have to keep on picking up multiple ideas and and trading off between them which is the real purpose what is which is the thing that if you don't do you will have effectively failed at your life <laughs> which thing is good versus which is the actual essential and in that wrestle uh i think you start to discover who you really are yeah if i'm understanding correctly you're speaking of the journey and the maintenance that comes with the journey and yeah the learnings and the lessons and, and the growth and the movement. So 
Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. The last one is what is your ultimate mission or what impact do you want to leave on this world? Um, it's like what I want is to be forgotten, uh, but in, in just like the best sense. Uh, one of the most profound perspectives of my whole life is the idea that a that hundred years from now, the chances are that even my own family will not like know who I was. And that's based on the idea that basically no one that I've ever talked to, and I've asked this question out to thousands of people, uh, without any exaggeration, literally thousands, I've asked whole groups of people to put their hand up if they can name the first and last names of, their, of all of their eight great grandparents. And there's hardly a, a group, even when I'm in audiences that are genealogically you know, interested in curious groups, there's hardly anyone that can. And that's just, do they know their names? <laughs> so it's an amazing loss of knowledge, intergenerational forgetfulness, that we literally don't even, can't even tell you the first and last names. If you don't know the first and last names, you don't know anything. Yeah, that's at least what I'm, I, I, I take from it. And so these are the same people that have made us. Um, you know, they, they literally, uh, you know, DNA comes from them. Uh, but then way beyond that, our, where we live, the language we speak, the culture of our family, the, the, just the way we even operate in the world is shaped by these people that we don't even know their names of. Uh, to me, that's one of these really mind-bending insights. And to try and think about life from that perspective produces equal parts humility and, and deep purpose. The humility is that like the forgetfulness, so I've emphasized that part. The, the, the meaningful part is that we have the chance to impact people for generations to come after us. The people that came before us that we can't remember still impacted us. So impact outlasts memory. Mm -hmm. And so for me in terms of leg I think I don't know if you used the word legacy, but that I that the spirit of it was in your question. Mm -hmm. I I I want to be forgotten, but I want to have used my time in such a way that I thought of them. They may not think of me, but I used my last waking you know, breath designing and choosing in such a way that their lives would be better, wiser, um, more protected because I, I've used my little window of life in that way. Oh, that's so beautiful. Like I, I love the idea of, you know, you're instilling a mindset and my hope is that this mindset continues on for generations and generations. And you make up a good point, you know, I can't remember my grandfather's, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather, etc. But maybe he did something in this world that made a huge impact that's impacting our society today in a positive way. Right. And so that is a beautiful thing if you can, if you can do that. And, you know, it's not about, oh, you know, I want to receive this gratitude for the rest. I, I want people to recognize me. It's about Hey, like you're making a massive impact that could affect generations. Uh, in your in your book, one of my favorite lines is, "Most of which exists in the universe has little 
value and yields little result. On the other hand, a few things have tremendous impact. And I'm hoping that we can all get there. Yeah, well said. Yeah. So to finish off, uh, where can our listeners find you? I could speak to you for hours, so, uh, but I thought we'd close here. Well, it's been, it's been my pleasure, Kelly. Yeah, look, I mean, you, I, I think that the best thing for people to do is just go to essentialism.com. Uh, for now, th- but they can, they can sign up for the weekly newsletter, the One Minute Wednesday, and, and there, there are projects in, coming on now, um, like the Planner. Actually, there's an online uh, academy uh, that I'm um, that, that I'm developing. Uh, there's the new book. They, they, if they just come and they join in that newsletter, they'll, they'll get access to everything else. The, the weekly podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is all part of a bigger strategic effort to build a community. Uh, and so, essentialism.com will grow into that hub. That's perfect. Everything is in one spot. Yes, <laughs> just, it will be. You're very essentialist and intentional with that. Everything everything moves out from the gregmcewen.com. Uh, also, you have a new book coming out, uh, I believe, next April-ish. That's it. Yeah, next April. Uh, effortless, make it easy to get the right things done. Very, very excited for this. Hopefully, we can reconnect once your second book is released. Yeah, looking forward to that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. In the meantime, take care and we'll talk to you soon. You too. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed my discussion with Greg McEwen and find great motivation in his insights. I highly recommend Greg's book, Essentialism. And if you would like to learn more about his work, his podcast, and other resources, please check out the links in our show notes. Greg is on an important mission to help us gain clarity on what's most essential to us so that we can be more selective with our time. For me, living a minimalist lifestyle has not only helped me gain the clarity to clear out the clutter in my life, but also influenced me to adopt an essentialist mindset and organize my life around the most important things. And it is my goal to inspire you to do the same. This lifestyle is a lifelong journey that requires great self-discipline, but I guarantee you that it's one worth investing in. Thanks again for listening and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.